I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, fascians, and things to episode 100 Ooh. of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Jarman. And I'm Steve. We're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. What are those, Jarman? Those are the Muppets and Star Trek. And every 50 episodes, we compare two of the movies from those franchises. And now that it's the 100th episode, what are we talking about this time, Steve? In honor of our 100th, we're going to be discussing The Great Muppet Caper and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yes. Two movies we've actually reviewed before on the A Play on Nerds podcast long ago. Separately. Yes, separately. But now we are comparing them to rip them apart. Which makes total sense. Uh, Like battling two Pokemon. (laughs) I choose you, Muppet Caper. Go. But before we get to our reviews and discussions, German, I hear we may have some feedback. We do. Uh, Mike, our lovely follower, at Jarek on Twitter. At Jarek. Yeah. He said, in regards to us talking about the inflatable Enterprise on that ridiculous Practical Joker episode, he said, uh, the TOS novel, How Much for Just the Planet, featured the deployable practice target prototype. That's apparently what it was called, the deployable practice target. Um, He says, and yes, in this book, there was a ship's computer with issues thanks to a split Vulcan milkshake, (laughs) apparently. Uh, he also found someone on Twitter who actually cosplayed the Kirk is a jerk costume from the same animated series episode that Steve and I said we'd love to cosplay in that shirt. Um, I knew when I couldn't have been the first person yeah. to think of this. And so this girl, on she was wearing that in like a, a Starfleet looking skirt. It looked like really cute. She's like, I cosplayed Kirk is a jerk from the 1970s animated Star Trek series. And William Shatner and a bunch of other guys got mad at me because they thought I was hating on Kirk. <laughs> And she's static warp, static warp bubble with no e at the end on on Twitter, but uh, it looks yeah. really good. I, I still love to do it; it'd be fun. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks at Jerk. That's right. And since we don't have any uh, guest star today of the Muppet Show, what's what are we doing now, Steve? Well, instead of like some guest context, I've got some cameo context. Mm. Now, I didn't count the people in the bigger roles. I did stick to cameo one scene kind of roles. Gotcha. Uh, so you have John Cleese who plays the befuddled British owner of the house that Piggy breaks into. Uh, He's a former Muppet Show guest and member of Monty Python, of course. That's right. Uh, Robert Morley, British actor, who played the uh, befuddled gentleman who, like, recommended places for them to sleep. Yeah, I thought he must have been somebody because I didn't Uh, recognize him. But He's a classic British actor. He's been around forever. Uh, He was nominated for an Academy Award in 1939. Wow. For playing King Louis XVI in Marie Antoinette. Wow. Best supporting actor. 1939. Uh, Peter Ustinov, who played the truck driver. He's a former Muppet Show guest and one of our top three from season one. That's right. Uh, Jack Warden. He's an American character actor. This is another Academy Award nominee. He was nominated in both 1975 and 1978 for Shampoo and Heaven Can Wait, respectively. Mm-hmm. But he played the their, their, their angry boss at the, at the newspaper. Uh, and then Peter Falk who played the crazy guy who talked to Kermit on the bench about uh, the dry cleaning business uh, is an American actor best known for princess bride and Columbo. And I had no idea, but Columbo ran for like 10 years and then had TV specials for like a decade and a half after that. 
Oh, yeah. And then the daughter of Columbo was played by Captain Janeway herself. Um, I'm forgetting her name now, suddenly. Uh, Kate Mulgrew. Okay, thank you, Kate Mulgrew. She played Columbo Jr. It's called something funny like that, like Miss Columbo or um, something like that. It was but, ridiculous. But at the time he did this cameo, he was at like the peak of his his fame as Columbo. Just one more thing. Just, it was weird. Just one it's more weird thing. he did this movie. It's um, great. <laughs> Uh, you also get cameos from a few Muppeteers, including uh, Richard Hunt, who plays a cab driver. And um, God, I didn't prep this. And so I'm just pulling names out of my butt. Jim Henson was quickly at a table once. Um, Jim Henson is at a table at uh, the Dubonnet Club. Yeah. Where they go. I recognize him immediately. Uh, uh, let me see. I don't think Frank Oz. Jerry Nelson. Really. Jerry Nelson and his daughter. Had a cameo. They're the ones that uh, that mistake Kermit for a bear in the park. Oh, gotcha. It's not a bear. Bears have hats. <laughs> um, uh, so there's some other great cameos just spread throughout. But what happened in this movie? Well, this is one of those weird situations where the movie starts with Kermit, Fozzie, and Gonzo as themselves literally plummeting from the sky into this movie. Right. Where they where they come out from under the balloon and suddenly they're characters, basically. <laughs> uh, we get an opening musical number, Hey, a movie. Uh, as I said, they're crack reporters. They just missed the jewel heist of the century. Their boss balls them out. They head to London to solve the crime. Uh, they end up basically in a vagrant mo- uh, encampment called the Happiness Hotel. And we get a musical number, The Happiness Hotel, which just sings about how rundown and terrible the place is, but how they're just going to love it. Um, they have to go and find Lady Holiday because they have to interview her to figure out who stole her diamonds. Uh, they're going to go the next day, but they get caught in a bed uh, and can't go. <laughs> uh, we cut to a busy fashion design office. We meet Lady Holiday. Piggy is an aspiring model. She barges in, refuses to take no for an answer until she agrees to work as a receptionist. We then get some exposition about Lee Holiday's no good brother, which they literally admit is exposition. <laughs> uh, Kermit uh, and the guy and the guys pull up. They mistake Miss Piggy for Lady Holiday. She doesn't correct them on this because it's kind of like love at first sight. And Piggy agrees to go to dinner with Kermit, giving him a fake address. And Kermit and the boys go get ready. Um. They they go. They, there's like a whole uh, stepping out with a star, a great musical number with Kermit and the boys getting ready, only for him to try to break it to Fozzie that they're not coming. Right. And then suddenly the entire hotel is coming to their date. <laughs> Meanwhile, elsewhere, Piggy is breaking into a British home at the fake address she provided Kermit. She barges through the house to meet Kermit. The owner is befuddled and nice enough to give them a dinner recommendation. My favorite scene in the whole uh, movie is that extended sequence of that, her breaking the house. It's not really a restaurant. It's more of a, a supper club. And the, the butler's dead. No, not the butler. <laughs> the dogs are dead. The butler's been discharged. Oh, yes. Oh, of course, of course. Um, they head to the Dubonnet Club, the Electric Mayhem tour bus. It's great. We get the song Nightlife uh, from the Electric Mayhem. Uh, Kermit tries to get to know Piggy. Um Meanwhile, Holiday is there. Like the real Holiday shows up with her brother Nikki. It's the bad guy we saw at the beginning of the movie. Gonzo schemes on how he's going to come up with the money for them to pay for this, and we get this musical number the first time it happens. Uh, it's flashy with tap dancing pigs. It's great. 
And as the number concludes, the light goes out and there's a scream and Lady Holiday's jewels are stolen. Oh, no. Uh, Miss Piggy is revealed that she isn't the real Lady Holiday and she flees the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Kermit at the park the next day is just talked at by a drunk man in the park. <laughs> tells him about a dry cleaning business uh, before Piggy shows up. She pleads her case and Kermit once again breaks the fourth wall with Piggy telling her she needs to stop overacting, admitting that she is an actress in the movie that we are watching. Right. Um, they make up and go on a bike ride and they are joined by the remainder of the gang. We get the song. Couldn't we ride, which is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, it's the day of the big fashion show. Nikki makes a pass at piggy. Kermit barges in one of the models hurts herself and piggy has to take her place. We then get a synchronized swimming musical number that is literally just called Piggy's Fantasy. It's insane. At the end of which, she ends up in a fountain at the show. They're drying her off. Nikki plants the remains of one of the necklaces that was stolen, and Piggy is arrested for the theft of Lady Holiday's jewels. Uh, Lady Holiday orders her fabulous baseball diamond uh, moved to the high-security Mallory Gallery. <laughs> uh, which plays right into Nikki's hands because him and his gang of models are planning on breaking in with all this high tech equipment. Uh, both crews get ready to break in. We get this great checklist scene. Um, meanwhile, P- Piggy just breaks out of prison. She pulls the bars apart like a hole. Pulls the bars apart, escapes from prison, commits grand theft auto twice, <laughs> and assault on a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she makes her way there. Uh, they play a game of keep away with the thieves, uh, throwing the baseball diamond around just as things look bad. And Nikki pulls a gun. Piggy busts through a glass window, s- saving the day. And the police come and catch the real thieves. Uh, the gang all catch a freight class flight back to the States. They get thrown out of a plane. Uh, and uh, as they float down in parachutes, we get a reprisal of Hey, a movie. Hey, a movie. As the end credits of them all floating down. <laughs> Very well done. Uh, and that is what we call the Great Muppet Caper. Oh, yeah. So, Jordan, what did, what did you think of Great Muppet Caper? Obviously not the first time you've watched it, because we watched it for the show. This is exactly the second time I've watched it. Um, and I will say, I love Diana Rigg. I want to give her a shout-out as Miss Holiday. She's from the Avengers originally in a James Bond movie. And then more recently, people know her from Game of Thrones as... Um, I want you to know the it was Queen me. Of Thorns. Yes, she's awesome. Um, so hot back then, man. She was great as the Avengers and all that. Um, Kermit shaving was hilarious. I don't know why I found that so funny because he says he eventually says, "Oh, I, maybe if I got some stubble, I'd actually put a razor in this thing." <laughs> Just doing it for fun. Um, <laughs> as I said, the John Cleese Dorcas scene, my favorite thing in the whole movie. It just goes on for so long, and it's just so like very subtle and very British. Um, Am I boring you? Oh, no, 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 dear. If I'm bored, I, I go buy bored, some cheese. <laughs> go out and buy something, I guess. What would you buy? What? Oh, uh, well, what cheese. would you buy? I, I guess a little bit of Carlsford jelly. <laughs> That's right. I think I should like to come with you. Oh, no, no, no. No need to trouble, dear. Well, I haven't <laughs> left so the house good. in 12 years. <laughs> it's so good. And you're right. It goes on. Like, they just let them sell this thing. I know. It's so good. To an audience that expected to see Muppets. <laughs> that scene just was so perfect. Did you hear that, sweetheart? Oh, yes, I think it's a, there's a pig climbing up the wall outside. Oh, yes, okay. <laughs> Is that the pig from outside? Yeah, that's the trap. That's the trap. <laughs> the trap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, 
Our UK listeners, tell us on a scale of zero to ten how British this scene is. Yeah, if it's just over Our the UK top. UK listeners, accurate. watch that scene. Tell us how accurate it is. <laughs> I, I love Sam the Eagle's quick cameo. He had like a one second cameo. There's a few like you know Sesame Street. There's like a, a the Grouch, uh, Oscar the Grouch cameo Oscar. as well. Um, I feel like this was like a big budget, even though it wasn't a destination or a setting movie like treasure Island or Christmas Carol, it still felt like it had a big productions and like it was all filmed on location in England. Like, so that was pretty cool. Um, the light bulbs falling and breaking three times got made me laugh every single time. <laughs> yeah. Them getting closed up in that thing. That was real good. Did someone get the lights snap. <laughs> breaks. Um, Peter Usinoff, I put just, I was so excited to see him. Um, cause now I know who he is more cause of our episode. But uh, overall, I don't know why I said last time, but I think this is one of my favorite Muppet movies. And I think because it's got like all the jokes hit. It's got a lot more adult friendly content, not like adult content, but like so many jokes that were definitely for the adults and not just for kids. Yeah, um, absolutely. Big fun musical numbers. Cameos are all great. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, everything's just on point. Yeah. Everything delivers in this movie. And it's I think it's accessible to people who aren't Muppet fans already. I guess why I liked it so much the first time because I didn't hadn't seen many of the Muppets at all, and I still like this movie. It was fun and funny, and I don't know. So yeah, I think it's I just really like it a lot. Yeah, uh, absolutely. This is of the of the three originals. This is the best, mm. like without a doubt. Muppet movie was good, but they had a lot of lessons to learn. And uh, Muppets Take Manhattan, I love it. It has a huge place in my heart, but it has some major pacing issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that this movie just does not have. This movie, every single thing was on point. And wasn't Muppets in Space like your least favorite one? Is that the one that Muppets in Space is okay? My absolutely least favorite one is Muppet Wizards of Oz. Well, we don't count really... that one. <laughs> it didn't have a theatrical release. <laughs> uh, yeah, Muppet, Muppets from Space was it was pretty bad. I think I, that's one we disagreed on. I think I liked that one a lot, and you didn't like it at all. So we'll get to that one eventually. It was just okay. Yeah, we'll get to that one in like episode. 300 or something <laughs> exactly so you uh, have some so Jar- trivia but not song info this time around oh yeah um yeah because all the music was written for the the movie i ah, gotcha um yeah so it was just one of like oh, okay i guess i could just talk about all these things written by the same guy <laughs> um so some muppet factoids for couldn't we ride uh it ends with all of the muppets on bicycles into the distance they in the Muppet movie had shown Kermit on a bike. So the fact that they put all of the Muppets on bikes was just incredible. Uh, in the final shot, the camera kind of pulls back a little bit as they ride away. And you can see in the far distance, people on bikes looking back. And so those were a bunch of guys they had on bikes, pulling this huge rig filled with Muppets. <laughs> and one of them was a young Brian Henson who was on set those days and he got to ride a giant, like rigged up tricycle. That's adorable to pull this huge Muppet rig. <laughs> uh, Frank Oz underwent three days of scuba training and then went in a pool basically for a full week of filming Jeez, to get the Miss Piggy musical number, which was apparently a nightmare <laughs> because of communication sound delay in the water and the fact that they had to have Team divers do things simultaneously perfectly when they called action. They really wanted to get that right, didn't they? And between all of those things, it was a nightmare. Go figure. <laughs> uh, and this was the first time, even mildly, that the Muppets uttered a swear word Ooh. on, on, on a, a, a mainstream thing. And that was in the song Happiness Hotel. And when Janice sings, and the whole joint's gone to hell. <laughs> 
<laughs> that hell was like the first one the Muppets ever did. Yeah, because it's not hell in context of being a place, but an actual curse, basically. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what did you think was the best Muppeteering moment? The um, the, I know that the bike sequence is insane and complicated. The swimming sequence is insane and complicated. They for both some, were. The most uh, outlandish one, so I'll break out of that mode a little bit, for me, was the Happiness Hotel Mobile going down the streets of London with all the Muppets performing on it and sticking out the windows and stuff. I'm like, that is awesome. So if we say favorite Muppeteering moment, for some reason, that's my favorite. Cause I'm like, that is, I would love to have seen that while it was just driving down the street in London. <laughs> like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> so I love that little, that just, they did it a couple times and it was just amazing. Um, Yeah, I, I am going to give it to the bicycles. Um, mostly because it is partnered with one of my favorite songs and one of the more sincere songs in this film. Yeah. Realistically. Um, and I just loved how much they showed off. Mm. Cause like literally in the last movie, we got to see Kermit ride a bike for like 15 seconds. So for them to have like 14 Muppets on bikes and like doing handstands, and they were doing remote control head movements and stuff that they hadn't done before. It was just, it felt like this big chance to show off. Yeah. And it was, I guess, released shortly after the final season of the Muppet Show. So, like, this is like peak Muppets, basically. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, all right. Well, I guess that takes us to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yes, and most people listening to this will probably be pretty familiar, so I'll try to get through this uh, plot fast. Yeah, if you are somehow <laughs> listening to the Muppet Trek podcast, episode 100, and you haven't seen Star Trek 2, I don't know how you got here. <laughs> I don't either, but like, hey, I don't know how you got to us. If you just need some kind of recap, here it goes. <laughs> so, movie opens with the famous Kobayashi Maru test. Uh, Captain Spock now is testing his cadets, uh, in particular, Lieutenant Savick, who's a half-Vulcan, half-Romulan, and canon somewhere uh she's in the command chair played by cheers's kiersey alley uh she fails the test and spock explains it's meant to test her character not to be winnable uh kirk meanwhile is overseeing these things and he's very grumpy in the beginning of the movie because he's an admiral now and he's got nothing to do he's bored and bones tells him he has to be he has to go command the ship again get his life back his youth back meanwhile the uss reliant is out there in space now with commander Chekhov on board and they're on a mission to seek out a proper planet for the mysterious Project Genesis, led by a Dr. Carol Marcus, who has a suspiciously Kirk-looking son. Hmm. Uh, che hmm. <laughs> uh, Chekhov and his captain uh, find a planet they think could be appropriate for a testing site for Genesis, but they have to beam down to make sure it absolutely has no life on it, so otherwise they can't use that planet. Um, they find an abandoned Starfleet shuttle there, and oh no, it's Khan and his remaining genetic manipulated goons that are on this planet, and they came from the shuttle. It turns out this is actually SETI Alpha 5, and it was turned into a dead world by a nearby planet exploding, and they've been stranded there for 15 years. Um, so Khan sticks these mind-controlling larvae into Chekhov and his captain, and he sticks it in their ears, and he gains control of a nearby Reliant ship by using them to trick them into getting off the ship and getting off the planet with his goons. And through interrogations and the mind-control bug, Khan learns from them what the Project Genesis is, it's a device that can terraform whole planets, so it could be also used to destroy the planets as well. So it'd be like a very huge amount of power. Khan wants this power, but he also wants his sweet, sweet revenge on Kirk. So he tells the space station Regular One, where Dr. Marcus is and the Genesis Project is, through, through a mind-controlled checkoff, that Kirk has sent orders to retrieve the Genesis device. And this pisses off Dr. Marcus because this is totally out of line. It's not ready yet. 
So she starts to evacuate the people in the space station and get the device and the scientists out of there so they can't get a hold of it. Um, she also makes a call to Kirk to kind of confirm that this order came from him. And when Kirk learns that someone is pretending to be him and ordering, pretending that he ordered something and threatening his former lover, Dr. Marcus, we find out, he hightails it to regular one. So Kirk takes over the command of the Enterprise, uh, but on the way, he's attacked by the Reliant and Khan on the way. And he finds out Khan is behind all of this, and Khan orders him to hand over all information he has in the Genesis device. They battle back and forth with subterfuge and such and heavily damage each other's ships, but Kirk barely gets the Enterprise away to regular one. And once they're there, they find that Khan has already slaughtered many of the scientists and trashed the place. But Chekhov and his captain are still alive in a couple of crates. But Dr. Marcus and the Genesis device are nowhere to be seen. They soon find that Dr. Marcus and her son and the Genesis device are hiding deep in a nearby planetoid where the Genesis device had already been tested previously and it created this wonderful oasis deep within the planet. But it turns out that Khan could hear everything they were saying from the nearby Reliant because Chekhov and the captain were still his spies with the little worms in their ears. So Khan radios them to kill Kirk, but the captain kills himself first uh, and then Chekhov resists until the space worm jumps out of his ear and he passes out. Uh, <laughs> Khan then has their location, though, so he beams the Genesis uh, device aboard the Reliant and plans to maroon Kirk on that planetoid, just as Kirk did to him on SETI Alpha 5. But apparently Kirk had made arrangements for Spock to beam him aboard the Enterprise earlier at a designated time. So they all get beamed up and head into a um, into the ship and they head into a dangerous nebula that the think that Kirk, uh, Khan won't follow them there. But Khan wants to follow Kirk into the nebula to finish his revenge. But his crew is starting to doubt, his, doubt him because he seems crazed with revenge and madness. But once in the nebula, they have this big submarine battle that happens back and forth. They damage both their ships more. But finally, the Enterprise mortally damages the Reliant, and Khan is close to death. But in one final move, Khan activates the Genesis device so that it will blow up, killing everyone in the process. And unfortunately, the Enterprise's warp core engine is down, and the only way to fix it is to go into the engine room, which is flooded with radiation. So Spock goes in to fix it, not telling anyone. He knows he will die, but he's going to do it. He's going to put himself before everyone else. Or everyone else before him, <laughs> but not before putting his Katra there goes Spock hogging <laughs> yeah. all the radiation again. <laughs> all for him, keeping it all for him. <laughs> I want it all for myself. Uh, not before putting his Katra soul thing into bones uh, first. So then he goes in this chamber, he fixes it. The Enterprise escapes just as the Genesis device explodes, killing Khan, but turning the nearby planetoid into an oasis planet. Uh, Kirk then gets a final moment with Spock before he dies. And then the next day, they send him out in a, uh, into space with a proper space funeral, shooting him out in a torpedo. But the torpedo lands directly into the new Genesis planet, setting up Star Trek III, the search for Spock. So that is Khan. Revenge of Khan. All that jazz. Revenge, comma, of, <laughs> of Khan. the Trek. <laughs> Whatever the hell it is. So, Steve, what do you think of this flick for the second time around? Or how many times have you seen this um, now? I've seen it, probably, you know, four or five times, probably. Yeah. Uh really good. I mean, for how this fixed this should have been the first Star Trek. Yeah. Like, the first one back. The first like if this had been the first Star Trek and this hadn't been like a redemption, who knows how high the Star Trek franchise could have climbed. Like even more than now. Right. Um, but the first one was such a downer. This one just avoided everything. It had considerably better pacing. It had a real actionable villain. Um that was like an existing threat. A continuation. Uh, now that I've the actually show. watched the episode, though, like there's nothing special about Khan. 
Like the crew faced way more deadly, dangerous things than Khan in the original series. That's true. Uh, but I, it's funny that because that's maybe the one thing I didn't have context on before this viewing. Right. Is in context of the original series. Um, everyone got a good moment. Of course, you got Spock at the end. And man, like that, that, that whole sequence is so incredibly well acted. And how like even blind... He hears Kirk, Kirk's voice. He stands up and he straightens his uniform. I noticed that too. It's so subtle. It's like before going uh, to talk to Jim, even though he can't see, he straightens his uniform. Uh, and then just the, the the brilliant acting and writing combination of the sorrow of even in the end facing death, hiding his love for like Jim and the crew behind logic. Mm hmm. Like, even in the end, it's not, I did it because I love you guys. It's uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, the needs of the one. And I think William Shatner's best acting is when he's acting with Nimoy. Like, I think they do the best acting together and it reels in Shatner, you know? Nemo keeps him grounded. Yeah. Nemo doesn't escalate. Exactly. Um, that being said, this also had, like, so rewatching that, the 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 now famous Khan from <laughs> Shatner, um, when Khan basically shows that he like he trapped Shatner down there. It was his plan all along. Ah, ha ha ha. And now he's going to take the device and kill everybody. And that Khan. But the issue is, is that like. There was no escalation. And Ricardo Montalban played the whole thing so cool. That Kirk's Khan is just ridiculous and out of nowhere and just a bad acting choice. It doesn't seem to fit in. You're absolutely right. But if Khan was like yelling or escalating or getting maniacal, like, and then they're all going to die, Kirk, and you're going to have to watch. No, <laughs> no, like that. The, no, God! God! something like that. But instead, he's like, you will pay, Kirk, my, for the final price. And I was like, oh, are you going to give any more tone there? Nope. Just being Ricardo Montalban. All right, cool. <laughs> um, so for all the good acting that one scene, that Khan is still just such a bad choice. Just a bad choice. That's probably why it's so iconic and like meme worthy is because it doesn't fit in anywhere. Um, and I'm going to say it, and this is not a shun on this movie, mm-hmm. but watching how good that ending was makes me so, so incredibly mad at the Kelvin timeline. Oh, oh, because of incredibly the incredibly yeah. mad. And we talked about this when we reviewed into darkness that like, Kirk sacrificing himself shows that he is a different Kirk than the one that we saw in Star Trek Two. I think it's part of the point. Like, yeah, like that he's a not different man in that then Spock has to go through those emotions that Kirk go through. Spock has to feel that rage that Kirk went through on the other side. And it should have ended with Kirk dying. And then the third movie being them finding a way to bring him back. Mm-hmm. That should have been what it was. But they threw it away with magic blood. And rewatching this brilliant ending makes me so mad at that ending. Yeah, because this is so much more set up and better earned because the whole point of the Genesis Project was bringing things to life. And so it's earned throughout the whole movie that, of course, that might have a weird chance of bringing Spock back to life if he's there on that planet. It makes more sense. Whereas at the end of the movie, in, in the darkness, like, oh, magic uh, blood. Cool. <laughs> it's like, what? Where did that come from? Like, okay, I guess. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that's not a shun on this movie. It is a shun on some producer who didn't see a good thing looking at him. A shun on a movie we'll watch in 600 episodes. 450 <laughs> or something. It's something nuts. No, even larger. Cause we have all the TNG movies to get through. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> so like episode 700 or something, maybe. Yep. <laughs> uh, I'll say it's definitely a well-made film, but not my favorite Star Trek film by a long shot. Cause I like the next generation ones much better. Um, but I still like, I think it's very well done for the limited budget they had and the limited sets they had. They did a great job. Um, but I feel so strongly that it, it does suffer from never having Con and Kirk together in a scene. And they couldn't because it, of scheduling. But I was just like, I wanted that it so just bad. Sucks. It sucks so bad that there was no actual confrontation. Yeah. And it was in apparently earlier versions of the script, which I'll talk about in a minute but with trivia. But like, it just, you can feel it after you've watched it several times. Like, they just are never in the same damn room together. And so it just, it takes away from it. Right, and they like clearly aren't acting against each other, which led to that huge disconnect. Yeah, the con disconnect. Yeah, exactly. Like for all I know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe William Shatner made a great acting choice with the scripted supervisor he was yeah, leading against. That's true. <laughs> um, and I think part of your answer for why why this villain that they took into a movie, I think is partially because Ricardo Montalban was a big star at the time with Treasure oh, yeah, with Fantasy, Fantasy Island. Island was hot. And they're like, like I get we? it. So they had writers apparently re watching all the old episodes and like, what do we do for a movie? And like the, they, this one kind of stuck with them. She's like, look at Montalban, man. He still looks like that. He looks fantastic. Let's put him in a movie, you know? Like, so I think that was kind of built around him. And I think he really steals a lot of the show in this movie. His acting is subtle and that can be crazy. And it can be all, it's like, he does such a good job. He's like the anchor of this movie, I think. And and Spock, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. But yeah, some trivia for this baby. Um, so you probably heard some of this in our Play on Nerds episode forever ago, but we'll see. Uh, the Blu-ray special feature, The Captain's Log, Ricardo Montalban says that once he committed to this film, he realized that he had trouble getting back into the character of Khan. So after years of playing Mr. Rourke on Fancy Island, he found that he was stuck in that character. So he requested a tape of Space Seed, the original episode from Paramount, and proceeded to watch it repeatedly. And by the third or fourth watching, he had recaptured the essence of Khan's character. Of course he did. He's a great actor. Um, producer Harv Bennett reviewed all the episodes. I think I talked about that. And he, um, one thing they say in the episode, reason why he liked this too, is because Spock in Space Seed says, um, this would be interesting to return in a hundred years to see what type of civilization had grown there. Because um, Spock was picturing them thriving on this planet and growing as a civilization of these genetically modified people. But of course that doesn't happen. So, it's kind of fun, interesting that he says that in the episode. Um, the character backstory of Lieutenant Savick, Kirstie Alley, uh, was intended to have Romulan Vulcan heritage, which would have made her more emotional than a pure-blood Vulcan. And there's three hints at this then in the final film, because during the Kobayashi Maru, she says to herself, damn. And then she gasps in shock when Scotty appears on the bridge with the midshipman's Preston's injured body. And she is emotionally moved by Admiral Kirk's eulogy at the end. So she has more emotion than a regular Vulcan. Um, Leonard Nimoy did not know about the final shot of Spock's coffin on the surface of the Genesis planet. He first saw this at the premiere and has said that his first thought was, I'm going to have to get, I'm, I'm going to be getting a call from Paramount apparently because I didn't know I was going back to life. Um, the phrase to the last I grapple with thee from hell's heart, I stab at thee for hate's sake. I spit my last breath at thee is taken from Captain Ahab's speech from Moby Dick. There's a lot of Moby Dick shit throughout all of Star Trek. Um, especially this one. Uh, Many of the actors playing Khan Noonien Singh's remaining henchmen were Chippendale dancers at the time of filming. <laughs> so, and if you look at the background, Very tall and blonde, tall, man. blonde and muscular. If you look in the background, they do some terrible extra work in the background. Like, there's some weird smiles at parts. They shouldn't be smiling. It's like, they're not good actors. They're just strippers. <laughs> um, it's been widely debated that Ricardo Montalban's chest was actually a prosthetic piece that he wore during the film. 
Um, in the director's commentary on the Blu-ray, Nicholas Myers quoted saying that this was, in fact, Montalban's actual chest. And he was a very muscular man who, even in his 60s, still maintained a vigorous workout regimen. And when he was on uh, Montalban was on the Johnny Carson show, they asked him how he looks like that at his older age. He says, a lot of push-ups. That's what he would do, just a lot of push-ups. Um, the computer simulation of the Genesis transforming a dead planet into a habitable one is the first complete computer-generated sequence ever used in a feature film which I thought was pretty cool. Um, first ever. Uh, the demonstration of the effects of the Genesis device on a barren planet was to be presented by using a traditional animation, but Paramount Studios executives asked for something more impressive. The scene was shot using an entire computer-generated sequence. The effects were produced by the graphics group of uh, division of Lucasfilm, and this division would later become an independent company under the name of Pixar. So that was the first Ooh. ever animation of Pixar, basically. Uh Leonard Nimoy was persuaded to return as Spock when he was promised a death scene. An early draft of the script called for the death scene to take place at the film's beginning. However, this information got out to the fans, possibly from Gene Roddenberry, um, who became highly upset. So the Kobayashi Maru scenario was invented to allow Spock to die in the opening as rumored and throw off the audience for the drama of Spock's actual death at the film's ending. So everyone thinks like this is a real scene happening and he dies in the beginning, but he's he's actually fine. Um. Space Seed aired on February 16th, 1967, and Chekhov didn't appear in Star Trek until much later. Um, so due to Walter Koenig not having been cast yet. So, however, Khan and Chekhov still recognize each other in the scene. And this inconsistency is often explained by the assumption that Chekhov was actually working on the ship during the events of Space Seed, but not in the bridge. And that he and Khan meet off screen somewhere. <laughs> and according to a novelization, um, Chekhov was actually working in security during Space Seed and managed to delay Khan while taking over engineering. And this impressed Captain Kirk enough to offer Chekhov a position on the bridge later on. So it's kind of like his he was there, just in the background. Wow. Um, just a couple more, because there's a lot of them, but I just picked out some more here, just like three more. Um, <laughs> following Star Trek The Motion Picture, Gene Roddenberry wrote his own sequel, and in his plot, the crew of the Enterprise travel back in time to set right a corrupted timeline after Klingons used the Guardian of Forever to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy for some reason. Uh, his idea was rejected since the executives of Paramount Studios distrusted Roddenberry. They blamed him for several problems in the production and reception of the first film because he held things up all the time with script rewrites and all this crap. So they're like, no, we'll let somebody else write it. And But it turned out so good. <laughs> yeah, it's a slog. Um, a draft of the original script had Khan defeating Admiral Kirk in a sword fight, which would have been a lot of fun. Uh, because he should beat him. And Harv Bennett, the producer, wrote a first draft for the movie script before hiring his screenwriter. His version was titled The War of the Generations. According to a summary of this, Kirk investigates a rebellion on a distant world and discovers that his son is a leader of the rebels. Khan is the mastermind behind the plot, and Kirk and son join forces to defeat the tyrant. So it would have been like a father-son kind of special. And uh, the last one... Many huge fans of Star Trek mistakenly remember Dr. Leonard McCoy saying, damn it, Jim, on the original series. However, he says the line in this film for the first and only time in all of Star Trek. This is the only place where he says, damn it, Jim, which I'm surprised at, too. I could have sworn he said that all the time, but I guess he didn't. It's just a thing we associate with him. He's he's dead, Jim. He says that a lot, but that's about it. Just like uh, like Fozzie only says Waka one time on the entire Muppet show. Is that right? But people remember it from the movie. Waka, waka, waka. <laughs> all right. So any Trek connection, Muppet connections? I figure there'd be a lot of all these cameos. 
Yeah, I didn't dig too crazy deep. Uh, <laughs> Kirstie Alley, uh, her and Kermit did a red carpet interview at one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie premieres. Weird. Uh, and she also appeared in one of her early, early acting roles on The Love Boat. The Love Boat? The Love Boat. <laughs> and as we've discussed, many, many Star Trek guests and Muppet Show guests have been on The Love Boat. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, Ike Eisenman, who played Scotty's nephew, the like the young engineering boy. I think that's in a cut scene too. I don't right. think they mentioned that in the movie. Um, he appeared, he was a working actor and appeared on an episode of wonder woman, which starred Linda Carter, who was a guest on the Muppet show. Oh, look at that. And there you go. <laughs> I'm sure there's many others deep down. There's somewhere, so but... many. I'm sure I could dig further. Cause there's so many cameos. To. And there's so many cameos so many. and so many connections because they're the same, the same movie. Uh, okay. So I'm going to read this one, uh, knowing that it is now out of date. Okay. Okay. Based on literally this episode, both feature fake manliness. Charles Grodin dubbing over his singing voice in the piggy fantasy and Ricardo Montalban wearing a fake chest piece. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We can go off the mythos for that one. That works. Mythos only. Uh, both have a main villain trying to steal the MacGuffin, the baseball diamond, and Charles Grodin, the Muppet Caper, and the Genesis device, and Khan in The Wrath of God. Uh, yeah, I've got similar. Both have classic whodunit mysteries. Oh, yes. The Lady Lady Holiday's stolen jewels and who attacked and murdered a bunch of people and left Chekhov in a cabinet. <laughs> yes. Classic whodunit. Classic whodunit. Uh, both feature a strong, independent woman that is trying to create a successful project being foiled by the villain. Uh, we have Miss Holiday in The Great Memphis Caper with her fashion show and fashion company constantly being sidelined by her brother trying to steal her jewels. And Dr. Carol Marcus trying to run the Genesis Project being completely turned upside down by Khan's machinations. <laughs> Both feature deeply conflicted characters. Nikki on turning on Miss Piggy, who he really does love. And Captain Terrell on betraying Captain Kirk and then phasering himself to death. That was pretty intense. Yeah, that's true. I love how the option was just to resist. Yeah, he could have just done that. He would have been okay. <laughs> like Chekhov just did that and kicked it. I'm like, oh, so that's just you guys just need to resist harder. And that guy just killed himself. That sucks. Terrell couldn't do it. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Uh, that's weird. Oh, what's that noise? Transporter malfunction. Uh oh. Transporter malfunction. That does not sound good. <laughs> so it's the part of the show where we transport one character from one episode, this case movie, to the other movie, and vice versa. So what you got for Steve? Uh, I'm going to take Miss Piggy and replace Savick. So replacing Kirstie Alley, uh, because I would love for Miss Piggy's acting to get so big at one point that William Shatner has to tell her to tone it down and like breaks the fourth wall by two. We get the fourth wall break. <laughs> Piggy, Piggy, it's a little over the top. You're telling me that? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, there for Muppets of Star Trek, I have also Miss Piggy, but I'm going to have her trade places with Kirk, because I think in this movie, she showed so much ingenuity and fortitude to get around and get it where she wanted to go and get what she wants that she could definitely take down Khan, I think. She could do it all on her own. Uh, I'm going to replace, uh, so going Trek to Muppets, 
uh, I'm going to replace the Happiness Hotel with the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> That's funny. Where they go in and there's this weird array of characters and different alien looking things. And they have to sing a musical number about the <laughs> transporters and fabricators and stuff. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> and how there's no bugs and there's no mice. And they don't have to pay because there's no money in the future. <laughs> Replicators, <laughs> like, free food. <laughs> right, right. It really is the Happiness Hotel. Now I really want to see a Muppet Star Trek. That's what I just want to see now all around. Someone do it. Yeah. Until Disney owns Star Trek, it's not going to happen. Well, I can't believe that brings us to the end of episode 100 of the Muppet Trek podcast. <laughs> That's right. Join us next time for episode 101 with special guest on the Muppet Show, Joan Baez. And animated series episode, Albatross. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 